Okay, Jules, we're going to play a little game that I call Stump the Millennial. So I'm going to show you something, and stop looking at your phone for a second. Okay, why? Because if you get wrong answers, I'm going to hurt you. I'll show you something, and you tell me what it is. Okay, here's an example. What is this? Is it one of those things from when Wikipedia was inside books? Ow. This is a telephone directory. You're thinking of an encyclopedia. That really hurt. Good. Now I'm going to play some music, and you tell me what it is. Is it like when you call StubHub and they put you on hold? Ow. Don't be such a baby. That was only 400 volts. The music was the theme from MASH. You people are so walled up in your parents' basements. That's not fair. One time my friends... Uh-oh. All right. Well, we're, we are having every possible kind of technical difficulty today. And so... <laughs> and, and the only thing that you can really do about that is laugh. So let me tell you what we're going to do today, and then gradually we will wind up doing it. First of all, I'll tell you that you heard... I don't know how I'm going to say about... 25% of an intro that we actually recorded about two years ago with an outstanding intern named Jules Lefebvre. And it was kind of all about, you know, the the, the attitude that uh, older generations have towards millennials, that they're over-cosseted, uh, that they, they need more grit, they need their, um, they need some grit beaten into them, basically, and that they're out of touch with the realities that we knew. So uh, anyway, technically, for reasons we don't even know, that intro didn't work. Uh, and why, are we, why were we doing that? Because, in fact, today we're going to talk to Alfie Cohn. Alfie Cohn uh, is a writer and uh, researcher and theorist. Uh, he writes about human behavior and education and parenting. He's the author of 13 books. You're going to meet him in a second. His new book's called The Myth of the Spoiled Child, Challenging the Conventional Wisdom about Children and Parenting. And so I, I'm not going to attempt to summarize um, Alfie Cohn's point. I think it would be better if he does it himself. But uh, also joining us today, and it's a good thing, too, because because of other completely unrelated <laughs> difficulties, Alfie Cohn's not ready to go. He's up in WGBH right now, and they're trying to get ready for him. Uh, so uh, we'd also planned, uh, fortunately, to have um, a teacher, uh, Luke Reynolds, a seventh grade teacher uh, of English uh, in Harvard, Massachusetts, the author of Called, A Call to Creativity. He's also edited several books, including Imagine It Better, Visions of What School Might Be. So um, I'm going to start with you, uh, Luke, and then we'll, we'll get to Alfie as he's ready. Uh, and so um, one of the things we're going to be talking about today is the, the, the notion of competition. Um, competition, certainly I'm, I'm about to turn 60 in a week, and so I, and I went to an all-boys school, which was really founded on the notion of competition. Competition was probably you know, the, the, the predominant motif in thinking about everything. It was a sports-oriented school. Obviously, there's winners and losers in sports. And, and it was a school in which there was an academic hierarchy. You won academic prizes that other people didn't win. Everybody else lost. You won. There was an honor roll. You either got on it or you didn't. Um, and, and there was kind of a sense that there was a difference between success and failure. And that could be measured. And the people who succeeded would be rewarded. And that would, in fact, make their success, their effort and their ability more meaningful, that they would be rewarded and other people wouldn't be. And I'm pretty much describing the kind of zero-sum philosophy that's characterized education and a lot of other things in the United States. Um, yet, I also feel like we're in an era where some of that is being questioned. So as somebody who teaches, you, you can't treat all effort and all achievement exactly the same way. So if you have questions about the nature of competition and what its value is, um, I don't know, how, how, do you, how do you parse that? What kind of filter do you run those questions through? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, I see this come up all the time with my students that, um, 
that, that there's this notion, this sort of cultural notion that if it's competitive, it's going to be better. And I always start off every school year, whether I'm teaching seventh graders or 11th graders, I always start off every school year just telling my students a story about the London Marathon. And I have an older brother who's deaf, and he and I had this dream to run the London Marathon. And of course, we wanted to do well, but the dream was just to finish and to stick together. Well, long story short, it was an incredibly hard race, like any marathon is, but we were feeling proud of ourselves, and we got to mile 23. And this is a true story. At mile 23, a guy carrying a full-size canoe passes us, just <laughs> just breezes right past us, and he looks at us, and he's like, keep going, guys. You're going to do it. And we just, our hearts just broke. 23 miles, we're feeling like, we got this. It's going to be good. And our hearts broke on mile 23, and we limped the last three miles, and we felt terrible, terrible about ourselves until a few years later, I, um, a friend told me this quote from Teddy Roosevelt, comparison is a thief of joy. And I tell my students that story, and I say, look, my brother and I, what changed on mile 23? My brother and I felt great. We were excited. We were ecstatic. We hit mile 23. The guy with the canoe passes us, and we feel awful. The only, mo- the only thing that changed in that moment was we started comparing ourselves to Canoe Man. And, and we felt terrible. And I say, you know, you're going to get a lot of grades this year. You're going you're gonna to make sports teams. Some of you aren't going to make sports teams. If you immediately get your grade, and hey, 89, pretty good. I worked hard on that. And all of a sudden, someone next to you got a 97. It's going to change the way you feel about that 89. And competition is so bred into our society, but I try to really get through to my students. That is not what means you did well, not because you did better or worse than someone else. Um, I love that great line from Bob Dylan's song, Love Minus Zero, when he says, um, you know, my, my love, she knows that there's no success like failure, and failure is no success at all. And I love that idea of changing the notion of what do we see as success, and it doesn't always have to be doing better than somebody else. And ideally, and I emphasize the word ideally, mm. one would feel rewarded for the activity that one was doing. So mm. you and your brother are in the, Mar- you're in the London Marathon. That's pretty cool. It's a pretty cool story that you can even tell that story now. But a lot of times, some of the work that we do isn't as intrinsically rewarding. Mm. I mean, okay, so I spent, let's see, five years uh, of secondary, of middle school and high school studying Latin. Um, so, you know, I mean, and, and I was really, I worked really hard at it, too. And I, in fact, I would win either the lower school or the upper school Latin prize every year for this work that, you know, it, really, it wasn't intrinsically rewarding. Learning declensions, learning conjugations, and then eventually having the thrilling opportunity to translate Cicero's Catalinian conspiracy orations, which are really boring and, and repetitious. It just wasn't. I mean, I it's really good that I did it. I'm reaping rewards of it from it now. But it wasn't it wasn't really particularly. I mean, in terms of chop wood, carry water, be in the moment, you know, get joy out of what you're doing. It, just, it wasn't all that. So, I mean, it really was pretty meaningful to me when I got, got good grades, did better than the lunkheads in class who weren't working on this. And at the end of the year, somebody would give me a prize that everybody else did get. I would sort of think, well, maybe it was worth it that I did all that. But So, I don't know. Can, can you ever have a system that doesn't at least lean a little bit on those kinds of values. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I hear you. You know, I think, I mean, I, you know, I think it is possible, and I notice it with my students. So say, for instance, I'm doing an activity, and I say, okay, whoever, you know, I cut up this Langston Hughes poem. I, I, I got this from a, a great teacher at Farmington High School, Haley Zinn Rothorn. So I cut up this Langston Hughes poem, and I tell the students, um, you know, it's called I Too Dream America, and I tell the students, okay, I'm going to put you in groups of three, and your job is to put this poem together. And I've tried it both ways over the the years I've been teaching. So I say to, to one class, okay, put this poem together, 
And if you can beat the other groups, I'm going to give you a prize at the end of the period. I'm going to give you some great treat. What is it, Mr. Reynolds? What is it? I'll tell you at the end. You just got to try to beat the other groups. Then to another class, totally different class, they say, here's the job. You got to put this poem together and we're just going to see who, who can do it. I want you to work with your team. The goal is to try to work together, make sure everyone's voice is heard, and do your very best to try to get this poem. And inevitably, what shocks me is the kids who I do not offer a prize to inevitably work faster and better, and they, they're more, they have more fun. They smile more. And it, it shocked me because I've tried it both ways, and I thought, for sure, you know, our system is built on capitalism. The kids who get the chance to compete for a prize – they are going to be more motivated. But what I find, and you know, I'm definitely no um, omniscient teacher or anything like that, but what I find consistently is that with my students, when I offer community over competition, they have more fun and they tend to actually produce better results. Um, we're talking, well, first of all, I should say that we had a, a lovely fifth anniversary party for our show last week uh, that 500 people attended, and one of them was Haley Zinn Rothorn. So, mm-hmm. so there. Uh, uh, Luke Reynolds is here with us. He's a seventh grade public school uh, English teacher in Harvard, Massachusetts. Also joining us on the line is Alfie Cohn. I think we've got his ISDN connection up from WGBH in Boston. Can you hear me over there? I certainly can. All right. So um, your newest book is The Myth of the Spoiled Child. By the way, say hello to Luke. He's uh, the teacher who's been talking to me while we've been getting you ready. I've been listening with interest. <laughs> and, and most of what he's saying is is pretty much in lockstep with, I guess that's a very, that's the wrong term. That what mo- most of what he's saying conforms in a very natural and gentle way to the kinds of things that you're saying uh, in The Myth of the Spoiled Ch- Child, right? That a, a hierarchical system based on a kind of zero-sum scarcity model model where some people take the spoils and other people don't isn't really a good way for anybody to thrive. Uh, That's right. But actually, in previous books, I've looked at evidence that supports exactly what he's been telling us about his own experience from the classroom that consistently shows that competition undermines excellence as well as interest in the task. But so do, so too do rewards, even when they're not offered competitively. In other words, the worst possible setup would be grading on a curve, where my chance of getting an A is reduced if you get one. But getting grades at all, like other rewards, even if we all, in theory, could get A's, is itself destructive because the more students are focused on that extrinsic inducement of the grade, the reward, the doggy biscuit, the less excited they are about the learning the less deeply they tend to think. So that all is stuff that I sort of drew from in brief in the new book, The Myth of the Spoiled Child. And in the new book, what I'm trying to do is figure out why a series of derogatory beliefs about children um, and deeply social conservative views about parenting have come to be the mainstream wisdom in this country, even among people who are not conservative on other issues. Um, For example, the belief that excellence is inherently scarce, so that if everyone succeeds, that means we're being mediocre. Some of us have to fail so that others can triumph. And then the idea of conditionality, that kids should only get stuff um, if they have earned it, even when we're talking about parental love and approval or self-esteem. So there's, there's layers of assumptions and beliefs woven through our culture that affect the way parents and teachers come to think about kids, how they should be raised and taught, 
um, and what they're like. And evidence doesn't tend to support these these assumptions that kids are spoiled and entitled or that kids should have to jump through hoops in order to feel uh, worthy. And, but, in, you know, let me just turn to Luke for a second and say, OK, so I'm, once again, I, I'm guessing a lot of what Alfie Cohen says rings true for you. On the other hand, what you would like parents to be saying to their children, I'm assuming, is when you go to Mr. Reynolds's class, I want you to be respectful. I want you to pay attention. If he gives you homework, I want you to do it. If you don't do it, if you blow it off, there'll be hell to pay. Um, there'll be consequences. Um, or maybe, maybe you don't want parents to do that. The teachers I had definitely want my parent, wanted my parents to do that. and My parents were only too happy to oblige. But but comment on that. Mm, yeah, no. You know, uh, we just actually recently had parents' night here in Harvard, Massachusetts, and um, as soon as the parents walked in, I said one thing, and I said to them, I have, I have a lot of goals for your kids this year with me, but, you know, I have one huge goal. I want them to leave room 340 at the end of the year being more excited about reading and writing than they were when they came in. And I said, there's a lot that goes into that. And I'm going to make mistakes because every teacher does, every parent does. I'm going to mess up. But my goal is I want them to leave with more intrinsic motivation towards reading and writing. And a lot of the research shows that, you know, around middle school, high school, reading, you know, prodigiously drops off. The student's interest in reading drops off the map. And, you know, in just anecdotal sort of surveys and chatting with a lot of high school students, my own and, and, and ones I've met throughout the years, you know, they will tell me inevitably you know, Mr. Reynolds, I didn't read the book. I, I used the spark notes. And I say to myself, what's going on here if a kid can go through the system and get an A and not actually read, not actually, that, I mean, that's the joy of, of why a kid is in an English class, to read, to write, to enjoy those processes. And if we can create a system where a kid can ace that without actually doing any of the, the activity, then I think we've got a problem. So, you know, when I, when I was a student teacher about 12 years ago, I had an incredible mentor. His name was John Robinson. And he taught me the best lesson I've ever seen about responding to student essays. So he gave me an essay, and he said, okay, Luke, here you go. Here's the essay. Read it, you know, grade it, revise it, score it on the rubric. So I went through, and I, you know, made my marks and everything, and I used the rubric, you know, well-organized content, strong, you know, focus on the thesis, all of this. And it was a perfect score. So I said, you know, John, John, it was John Robinson. I said, John, I'd give it an A+. He said, okay, I would too, according to the rubric. But then he looked at me, and he said, you know what, Luke? that essay has no soul. And those words struck me, and, and it was true. The essay was so dry, but it had aced the rubric. And I think kids know this. High school students know this. They can manage to ace, and, ace a rubric and not bring any heart, not bring any soul into what they're doing. And I, my goal, and again, I fail at it a lot, but my, what I try to do is tell kids, you have to enjoy writing and reading. There has to be joy. There has to be a gut-level, heart-level interest in it, or else it's not going to matter. Even if you get an A+, that A+, is absolutely worthless if you didn't invoke some part of your heart. So Alfie Cohn is, is, I mean, in some ways, if we can get children to connect with the joy of certain tasks, of certain masteries uh, on their own, that's really great. But we know kids well enough to know that that's not going to work all the time. So, so how much structure do you think there needs to be in order for there to be some structure anyway in which a kid can navigate and operate? Well, it depends what you mean by structure. A lot of people use that term as a rationalization for control, for a reward and punishment approach that undermines the very interest in learning and excitement that Luke's been talking about. So if we start out with his premise, which is widely shared, that we want children to not just 
memorize a bunch of facts that they're soon going to forget, but to be um, in love with playing with words and numbers and ideas. We want them to be lifelong learners. Then we have to have the courage to do what experience and research say, um, which challenges much of the conventional wisdom about what schools look like. For example, the best teachers never give grades. Ideally, they're supported by the whole school structure that instead offers narrative reports and conversations to advise parents what and how their kids are doing. But every time you put a letter grade or a number in front of kids, the research says kids now are less likely to ask questions like, how do we know that's true? Or, but doesn't that contradict what we were talking about last week? And they're more likely to ask, do we have to know this? Is is this going to be on the test? So to harangue kids and say you should love this for its own sake while still giving them grades is the, you know, really the apotheosis of hypocrisy. And the same is true for homework. No research has ever found any benefit to any kind of homework before kids are in high school. And even in high school, more and better research is, is questioning the, the practice of making kids work what amounts to a second shift when they get home from school. Um, But apart from the possibility of ratcheting up skills, overwhelmingly most kids hate most homework. So anyone who is serious about the goal of wanting kids to love learning would not just talk about how many minutes or hours, but would question the entire practice. And then on the positive side, because grades and homework are practices that actively undermine excitement about learning um, without any benefit to compensate for that. But if we then wanted to ask, what should we do in order to promote learning? Well, the first thing, according to good research and experience, is bring kids in on designing the curriculum with you and make sure that the curriculum, in any case, is deeply engaging rather than practicing skills and memorizing isolated facts. So it's really hard to take these goals seriously at the same time that we're having traditional schools where kids play very little role in thinking about what they're learning and when and how and with whom, let alone the kind of schools that are about quizzes and grades and homework and lectures and worksheets, none of which have been designed to um, help kids become uh, lifelong, enthusiastic learners. Are we going to take a quick break here? We're going to come back. I just do. I do want to say <laughs> this. This is sort of like here's the Alfie Cohn nightmare story. So when I was in, I think ninth or tenth grade, uh, my algebra teacher was also the football coach, and we would, he would hand your exams back to you. He would kind of throw them, any kind of test. He would kind of throw them on your desk, and he would tell you what position you were on the football field based on your numerical grade. So you know, like an end is an eighty nine or something like that. A linebacker is like a fifty five. You know, but if you were like a running back or a quarterback, and he would just say it to you in front of the class. You know, he'd go quarterback I hope or something. That would be a nightmare. <laughs> for all parents and teachers. The fact that I'm for me. 45 years later, I'm still thinking about it uh, probably proves that it, it was a nightmare for me, too. All right, let's take a break. We'll come back with more. We're back. We're talking uh, about well, we're talking about child rearing and education, and kind of the place in which they they 
flow together. Uh, our guests are Alfie Cohn. He's the author of The Myth of the Spoiled Child and many other books as well. Myth of the Spoiled Child, subtitled Challenging the Conventional Wisdom about Children and Parenting. Also with us, Luke Reynolds, the seventh grade public school English teacher, who if I'd had him as an English teacher at some point in my childhood, I would have lower blood pressure today, I'm pretty sure. Uh, he's at Harvard, Massachusetts, but a background in Farmington. He's the author of A Call to Creativity. Also edited several books, including Imagine It Better, Visions of What School Might Be. Um, Alfie, I'm going to come back to you for a second in uh, um, uh, I think, although this is getting a little bit ahead of our story, it's still worth talking about. We have to think about sort of, well, what's the purpose of education? You know, what do we want to get out of education? And and uh, what do we want to have our children grow up to be is another part of that, although education isn't the only part of that. So, you know, Thomas Jefferson, uh, in a way that's uh, interestingly reminiscent of your term, respectful rebellion, Thomas Jefferson thought the whole purpose of public education was to have a questioning uh, citizen, a citizen who was able to resist the depredations of tyrants uh, because uh, he or she could ask, uh, probably he at that moment, uh, could ask really good questions uh, about this. Um, uh, this uh, you compared to cows in, in a Gary Larson car- cartoon eating grass and suddenly realizing that they're eating grass. Um, so that's a great thing. Uh, and I'm totally down with that. And I, I'm much more comfortable with that as a goal of public education than I am, uh, you know, preparing students to become uh, compliant drones of the business world. Um, on the other hand, I'm going to ask everybody listening and everybody participating right now to close your eyes and and, and picture the last time some system let you down, you know, some system that you depend on in adult life let you down. And I'll give you my own example. So we take our, our dogs to these vets. It's a big group practice. And, and the vets over a series of months and months and months missed a really easy diagnosis with our dogs, uh, made us spend a lot of money and put our dogs through hell with all kinds of other tests. F- eventually, we figured out by looking on the, on the web what was wrong with the uh, dogs. By now, that problem is so advanced, it's It's really, really difficult to treat. And I really want there to be, and this could be my own small-mindedness, I want there to be consequences. I want the head vet to get all the other vets together and yell at them and say, how could you do this? People come here and they count on us and you blew it. You know, you're, you were bad vets with this dog, and we owe these people an apology, and we've got to figure there's something wrong with you guys that you didn't get this, you know, over months and months and months. Because I'm angry at this system, and, I, I, and, and there's, there's an uncharitable part of me that says, I don't want a bunch of Alfie Cone vets who have been told that they're really good and that they're okay and being, been given trophies, you know, and then become the kind of vets who screw up and make my dog sick, you know. I, I want there to be a hierarchical here, system we? here. Yeah. Uh, for, first of all, uh, it's, it, I'm not suggesting we give trophies at all, um, and I'm certainly not suggesting we tell people they've done a good job when they haven't. That's mm-hmm. a caricature and a misreading of my position, which I haven't yet in this hour been able to um, articulate in terms of what's in the, in the current book. But I guess sometimes we all get mad and just want that sense of, yeah, yell at them because I don't like what they did. But we don't want that part of ourselves making policy, especially if we want other people's pets to be treated better in the future. Under the idea of accountability and um, withholding rewards from or simply punishing people who screw up um, is a model that isn't just disrespectful and unpleasant. It's powerfully counterproductive, which means 
it undermines the very things we're trying to promote. And it wouldn't surprise me to learn that in that veterinary practice or in any number of other structures where people screw up a lot, they've used exactly the philosophy that you're calling for, which is to reward the good people and punish the bad ones and manage through fear or set people against each other in a contest and so on. Another characteristic of the worst performing organizations is a tendency to focus on individual attributes, like which vet is talented or good, who's lazy, who's not trying hard enough, and then reward and punish accordingly. Whereas the best organizations, including schools and businesses, look at the systemic features that tend to promote or undermine excellence. And one of the best ways to promote excellence is to work with people instead of doing things to them, to give folks who are employees or students or even children and families a lot more say about what's going on so that we see screw-ups as problems to be solved together, not infractions to be punished for which people will be held accountable. So the more you're focused on a reward and punishment approach, the more you invoke notions of accountability, the more you set people against each other in a race for artificial goodies, and the more you're looking at characteristics of the individuals involved rather than the systemic uh, attributes, the more likely you are to create still more problems that people are going to solve in these same dysfunctional ways. All right. We have to take a break, unfortunately, for a little bit of uh, fundraising. We do want Alfie Cohn to be able to state his entire thesis. We got, uh, we're got we hitting off the back tees a little bit just because we had those, those technical problems at the beginning of the show. We will get to that. We will get to it all. And you'll have more of Luke Reynolds, too, uh, after this. But right now, some very nice people are going to explain to you why you need to support the kind of programming that presumably you're listening to right now. You still feel down. Okay, kids, we're going to do a little experiment here. You see these three marshmallows? Don't they look fluffy and delicious? Well, I'm going to eat them right before your eyes because you didn't have the fortitude to rush me and take them for yourselves. Oh, stop crying. I guess calling this an experiment is stretching the term a little bit. Today... Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, with help from our interns Josh Nalea and Jackie Filson. Jules Lefevre appeared in our intro, and Greg Hill tweets for us at WNPR Colin. Katie Talarski is our executive producer. The part of Bill Curry was played by Mark Zuckerberg. For show pages, articles, and videos of the Faith Middleton Show staff forcing lazy, entitled, and self-centered millennials to drink inferior Prosecco, visit our website, WNPR.org. On tomorrow's show, getting ready for a political debate in real time. And now, back to Colin. Yes, tomorrow at 4 o'clock, I'll be moderating a gubernatorial political debate, obviously between Dan Malloy and Tom Foley, uh, but not Joe Visconti. And so from 1 to 2 tomorrow, uh, Dennis House, one of the uh, panelists asking questions, and Jen Jen Bernstein, another panelist asking questions, and Kevin McMahon, uh, a political science professor at Trinity. We're all going to talk about debates and why they work and why they sometimes don't work and whether there's any kind of inherent obligation on the part of candidates to participate in debates and, uh, well, all kinds of things like that. We'll be preparing for that afternoon's debate in real time right before your eyes. Right now, we're talking to Alfie Cohn. Uh, his website, by the way, is alfiecohn.org. That's A 
L-F-I-E-K-O-H-N.org. His uh, newest book is The Myth of the Spoiled Child, Challenging the Conventional Wisdom About Children and Parenting. Also with us is Luke Reynolds, a seventh grade public school teacher in Harvard, Massachusetts, and the author of A Call to Creativity. Um, uh, Luke, in just a second, Alfie and I are going to talk about um, grit, uh, a quality that uh, may or may not have been kind of mythologized. Uh, but, you know, uh, last we should I should say that Alfie is going to be at Watkinson School on Tuesday, October 14th at 7 p.m., free and open to the public. About a week or so ago, we were at Watkinson School talking about education. We're actually going to share, I think, that forum with you, or an edited version of that forum in which things have been done to make me sound smarter uh, at, uh, I think, maybe the day after Alfie's presentation at Watkinson. I think it is next Wednesday, the 15th. Yeah. So um, with all that in mind, so I was doing a lot of reading about education. And one of the things that, that I was reading about, Luke, was that, uh, you know, Teach for America has this pretty huge data set where they're sort of looking at teachers who are successful, even in hardened circumstances, even in really challenging circumstances. So, you know, what are the qualities of these teachers? How are they able, even in situations of socioeconomic deprivation, and low parent parental involvement and yada, yada. How are they able to get these incredible results, assuming that we're even willing to concede that there are such things as results? So how are they able to get these incredible results? And one of the things that tended to be the case was they, they exhibited and tracked high in a quality that social scientists are even now working to quantify and call grit. Grit is just sort of that uh, determination. It's a determination sometimes in the teeth of failure to keep going, to keep going. I'm guessing, knowing what I know about you and the esteem in which you're held, not only in your school system, but in Farmington uh, before that, that, you know, when I'm up uh, at 10 o'clock watching Masters of Sex uh, on Showtime and drinking wine, you're planning uh, tomorrow's lesson plan, maybe even blew up tomorrow's lesson plan because you weren't happy with it. You weren't satisfied with yourself. Um, you're You're pushing yourself to get better and better results. So you've got grit. And I guess what I'm wondering is if you, A, be willing to acknowledge that, and then, B, where do you think it comes from? Who gave you grit? How did you get grit? You know, that's a great question. And, you know, I um, <laughs> I actually, I, I mean, I wouldn't call it grit. And, and you know, Alfie, even before, was mentioning, you know, quizzes and things like that. And I think I think there's a precursor to grit. And I've read a lot of the research on grit and watched a lot of the videos and the talks on grit. And I think grit is sort of a secondary thing. But I think before that, before we even talk about grit, for me, what it all comes down to is relationship. So I think any teacher, any kid, any parent – Anyone who feels like they're doing good work and they're engaged, they're going to have an, an important, meaningful relationship in their lives. And I think I would be willing to bet if we took every one of the, the teachers or every one of those kids who were assessed and say, oh, they're doing well, therefore, the correlation is they have, they have strong grit. That's what we're going to rate them on. I would say we need to go back before that and say they probably have or had an incredible, incredibly meaningful relationship. And I think for me, I'm grateful. I've had a lot of incredible mentors in my life, people who treated me like I was a, a human being with a beating heart and a deep soul, and they poured love and energy into me. And that, I think, more than any, any kind of grit, any sense of being up late at 10 o'clock at night is what drives me to be a good teacher. When I look at my students, I think I, and I, and I will tell my students this, as silly as it sounds in a public school system, I will say I care deeply about every single one of you. And I do this activity at the beginning of every year where students are paired up, usually across gender, because that makes it a little more awkward. And they're paired up um, face-to-face with their knees touching, sitting in a chair, and they just have to stare at each other and talk for five minutes. And they could talk about anything they want, but they can't leave eye contact from the other person. And uh, I tell them it's based on a lot of what my brother, my oldest brother, who's deaf, taught me. 
when I look away, the world goes silent to him. And as a hearing person with a deaf brother, that, that was something I didn't get until he, until he taught me that. And I think part of the lesson is to see people as people. And so with that in mind, I think, I, you know, I see teachers being incredibly effective who do give quizzes, but they have an incredibly strong relationship. And if, if I said to them, hey, how do you feel about the kids in your classroom? They would tell me, I love these kids. I love these kids. I care about them. I think about them constantly. And to me, anytime I think we say, okay, grit, it's all about grit, or anytime we say, nope, it's all about this, and we, we find the one thing as if there was one silver bullet, I think we get into trouble. And I think a better umbrella for me of, of what makes a classroom work, what makes a teacher or a parent or a kid do well and enjoy and, and find meaning in what they're doing. I think, for me, it all goes back to relationship. There's, there's someone in that class who loves that kid deeply, and that kid knows it and sees it. And there's someone, there's a parent who loves that kid, and there's a, the kid who loves that other kid. But I think there's an incredibly strong basis of relationship, to me, that precludes and precedes grit. Well, you know, this does, did come up in our Watkinson session, and Tom Moore, the superintendent of schools of Watkinson, said that he says to teachers, if you love kids, I can work with you on everything else. But yeah. if you don't love kids, uh, there's not too much that we can, there may not be much that we can do together. Well, Alfie Cohn, in the words, uh, the immortal words of the education and behavioral, th- behavioral theorists, uh, Chumbawamba, I get knocked down, but I get up again. All right. So that's a value we have. It's a value that, that it's exalted uh, here in the United States and perhaps elsewhere as well. Um, and so that winds up being what uh, stands in, I think, in our conversations about grit. But in your book, you're very skeptical of grit. Uh, Explain why. First of all, let's look at the study claim you made uh, a moment ago with which you prefaced this conversation that said grit was a characteristic of teachers who were successful and had, quote, incredible results. Almost all of the research um, that's done along these lines, defines incredible results purely in terms of higher scores on terrible standardized tests. So even if grit were the magic bullet to raise scores, um, I'm not sure I'm interested. My outcome variables, the ones I care about, have to do with what Luke mentioned before, kids who remain excited about learning, but also kids who think uh, deeply and critically and creatively about things that matter. Very smart, talented kids often don't score well on tests, and kids who don't have that much upstairs nevertheless are sometimes good test takers. Now, if my universe was framed educationally by grades and test scores, and I was teaching in a way that was leading to higher test scores, um, which is not very interesting, gratifying, or valuable, I might have to start invoking concepts like grit, which is basically just a recycled notion of what we found in Benjamin Franklin's aphorisms, you know, and uh, uh, if at first you don't succeed, try, try again. It just means keep going and persist at whatever you're told to do. So who benefits from um, enshrining this notion of persistence and self-discipline? It's not the children themselves who often don't get much out of it. It's the people who don't want to question the systemic constraints and uh, presuppositions that would have to lead to rethinking what we're teaching and how. When you're doing something you really get a kick out of, you don't need so much grit 
And so people like Angela Duckworth, who's the researcher associated with the term, who kind of remarketed this age-old conservative notion, is very clear that her goal is to make kids keep doing stuff even when it's boring. That's very different from the educational reformers whom uh, I've learned so much from who look at a system where kids are are bored out of their gourds um, and we're driving especially low-income kids out of school and say, how can we fix the system? That's completely different from saying, how can we get kids to keep doing whatever they're given to do in the system? So the old Latin expression, which I'm sure you'll recognize, Colin, cui bono, is the question that comes to mind for me. It's Who actually, benefits? That's actually in Cicero's Catalinian orations. That I did not yeah. know, and I'm so glad you did. You know. <laughs> I'm not Who sure knows what else you could have been learning when you memorized that, but we'll, we'll, we'll put aside the question of opportunity costs here. I, I think I don't want my kids to throw in the towel at the first sign of failure. Um, so I, I do hope that they will have persistence with a valuable goal. But the question of what the goal is and whether it is valuable comes first and counts more than what technique we can use to make kids comply with whatever they're ordered to do. Um, let me ask you this, Elvie Conan. I'm sure you get this a lot. How tr- you, you mentioned low-income students. So how transportable and how transferable is your thinking to an environment where instead of a helicopter parent, there's a mom working two jobs and no dad, a kid living in a pretty impoverished environment, both in terms of stimulation, actual money, and resources. This is a kid who needs to master uh, a certain set of skills in order to have some kind of halfway decent light life outcome. So if we start suspending some of these these things that you're so suspicious of, you know, I, I'm sure you get this anyway, that it'll work great in Westport, Connecticut, might not work so well in the north end of Hartford. What's your answer to that? That, that it's an outrageous and offensive claim that the stuff that is most productive, most likely to help people think deeply, and most likely to cause joy is something that only white rich people in the suburbs can handle. I would say that a progressive education where kids learn how to make good decisions by making decisions, not by following directions, where the emphasis is on giving kids stuff to do that they find relevant and meaningful, not stuff that will raise scores on bad tests, where they're helped to solve problems effectively, not rewarded or punished into obeying authority, that that stuff is nice and important for rich kids, but absolutely essential for kids who are struggling against racism and classism, kids who have to worry about whether they're going to survive to adulthood. I mean, let's be clear that even the perfect school, from my point of view or yours, is not going to make uh, complete progress when our problems go well outside the schoolroom. There are economic and political realities that it is foolish at best to hope that... um, Uh, you could solve educationally. But whatever we can solve educationally um, is a matter of a working with approach, um, an approach that involves um, meaningful engagement with stuff worth doing. And if anything, kids who have a harder time of it and face more entrenched systemic obstacles need that approach, not the traditional top-down drill-and-skill crap they're given, even more vitally than affluent and privileged kids do. 
Um, I don't uh, know how. Yeah, I only got two minutes left here, uh, so it's going to be hard to. I, I just do want to say that it's not that I don't think that kids in impoverished situations can handle, you know, that kind of stimulating and, and, and internal rewards based teaching. It's more that it's a question of whether we're willing to risk their futures on it. Um, you know, I mean, Louis C.K. always talks about his daughters, how they're two little white kids in America. By default, they're OK. You know, right. <laughs> but oh, I agree with you. Yeah. And I'm not saying you don't think that black kids can handle engagement. But when we look at what Diane Ravitch calls the billionaire boys club with rich white hedge fund managers um, supporting and funding the kind of um, military type schools that they wouldn't send their own children to in a million years, saying that kids in the ghetto uh, need to be treated like pets, publicly humiliated for noncompliance and sentenced to a diet of disconnected facts, because that's what will close the gap. I find that absolutely obscene, um, especially when we have, and I've written about this and so have many others, um, plenty of precedent for understanding what works better in low-income communities of color, which is a version of the kind of progressive education that a lot of rich white kids get in private schools. It's the opposite of the kind of no-excuses academy, which is callous and counterproductive and consigns these kids um, to a dismal future because they're being told to persevere at tasks that they understandably have little interest in doing. All right. We're going to have to stop there. Alfie Cohn, thank you so much for your time. Uh, the book is The Myth of the Spoiled Child, Challenging the Conventional Wisdom About Children and Parenting. Luke Reynolds, I met a lot of great teachers in the last week or so. You're clearly one of them. Seventh grade uh, public school teacher at Harvard, Mass., the author of A Call to Creativity. Uh, Kion, can I go home early? My daughters need me to clean their room. Are you kidding me? Your daughters make you clean their room for them? Yeah, it's punishment for when I got them white iPhones instead of black ones.